Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. I'm joined today by Carly Jackson. Hi, Carly. How are you? Hi, Jill. I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for asking. Thank you so much for joining me today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are? Awesome. Yeah, well, thanks for letting me uh, get a chance to come on here and talk about some stuff that I do. Um, So my name is Carly Jackson, and I am a graduate student at uh, Nova Southeastern University. So I live down here in South Florida, sunny South Florida. (laughs) And um, I also am a marine turtle specialist at uh, Gumbo Limbo Nature Center, also located in South Florida. Um, So yeah, that's a little bit about me. So how did you get into marine science? What kind of drew you to it when you were younger? Yeah, so I actually started, I remember very vividly, I was about five or six years old, um, and I remember seeing a book on sharks, specifically sharks. I might actually still have the book, and um, I begged my mom, I was like, I want that book. I just somehow felt drawn to that book. And ever since I read that book, I was hooked. I was, I'm originally, I'm from Detroit, Michigan. So um, there's not much, there's no ocean <laughs> up there. So, so yeah, I immediately got obsessed with all things ocean and all things sharks, mainly. I really like sharks. And, um, yeah, and my parents said, all right, well, guess you won't be going to school around here. <laughs> so. They accepted that you were going to be out and about to do your stuff Exactly. Like that. Yep. I already told them. I was like, I'm not staying here in Michigan. Sorry. There's no ocean here. <laughs> I feel like that's pretty common with all of us who uh, start out somewhere where there's not a whole lot of ocean. You just kind of fall in love with it. And you're like, well, I'll see you eventually, but I won't exactly. be here. Exactly. And they get to come visit when it gets cold up there. So, you know. <laughs> exactly. It's a win-win. Exactly. So what are you doing now? You said you work at Gumbo Limbo and you're doing some grad studies? Yeah, so uh, my job at Gumbo Limbo, I'm a marine turtle specialist. And what I do there is uh, help monitor the beaches for sea turtle activity uh, during sea turtle nesting season. So the nesting season is from March till October. And uh, we're on the beach every morning in between those months. Uh, We get on the beach a little bit before sunrise and we mark any turtle nests that we see. Um, I also help in the sea turtle hospital. So our nature center has a sea turtle hospital where we uh, rehabilitate turtles and release them once they're all healthy and ready to go. Um, And I'm also in grad school, hopefully defending my thesis sometime this summer. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. (laughs) Yeah. But but yeah, so for my thesis, I spent some time in Belize uh, doing studies on nurse sharks. So still finishing up that research. Um, And it's, it's pretty, it was pretty fun. And it's, pretty exciting stuff. I can imagine. So when you're working at Gumbo Limbo, why are you guys monitoring the beaches and marking everything? What's important about that? Yeah, so sea turtles are uh, various species that we get here are endangered and vulnerable. They're all on the IUCN red list. So um, unfortunately, their populations are declining. And South Florida is a very important uh, nesting habitat for 
three species of sea turtles. So we get loggerhead sea turtles, uh, green sea turtles, and leatherback sea turtles, specifically on our uh, coast down here. There are like a total of, I think, seven different species, but those are the three main species that we get down here. Um, but yeah, all three of those species, unfortunately, their population is on the decline. Um, green sea turtles are uh, actually, I think they're starting to be on the incline. They were the most critically endangered, but their populations are doing better. Um, but yeah, so it's important for us to monitor the beaches because they're all sea turtles are federally protected. And um, since they do nest on the beaches, they are sharing those beaches with humans. So it's really important for us to uh, protect the nests mostly from humans. That's really all we're <laughs> protecting them from. <laughs> what do you guys do to help protect them? Like you just put up signage, do you surround the nest? The uh, sea turtles, they nest at night, so that's the most uh, privacy that they get. Um, so we go first thing in the morning, we look for their crawls, and we'll follow their crawls up to where they nested on the beach. So where they nested, there's usually like a nice little mound of sand. Uh, well, big mound of sand, because they are pretty large <laughs> creatures. <laughs> um, but we put stakes around them. Every city and county does it a little differently, but specifically on my beaches, uh, we put three stakes around the nest and there's always a nest sign on there that tells you, you know, if you touch this nest, you're going to go to jail <laughs> and, and kind of gives, you know, educates on why like you should not be touching this nest and why you should probably um, be a little bit more conscious when you're on the beach, especially if pe people are on the beach at night. So, um, yeah, so that's the best way for us to protect the nest and we'll put tape around the nest as well so it's a barrier for um barrier to prevent people from getting tempted to go in the nest yeah. <laughs> I like that you guys put the education on there too and it's not just a like a, don't touch this it's a here's why you shouldn't touch this because I know personally if I see something that says don't touch this just I just want to touch it all of a exactly. sudden even if I shouldn't <laughs> exactly yeah so that's definitely um goes in the a little bit of detail of like what to do if maybe someone is touching the nest or, you know, like who to call. We'd have like all of our contact information on there. And um, people, for the most part on our beaches, people are pretty, people are very uh, conscious of sea turtle activity. So are the beaches you're at in a like heavily populated area where they have to be conscious of the lights as well? Yes. Yeah, so uh, actually, my boss at Gumbo Limbo is a lighting expert. I didn't even know that was a thing until yeah, I met him. Um, but he does all the coding for the lighting on our beaches. So there are, I think our beaches have about three different parks. So the parks are the darkest parts of the beach because there's trees and stuff, no buildings. Um, but outside of those parks, you know, we've got condos and big apartment buildings. Um, and for the most part, during turtle season between 9 p.m. and uh, until, you know, the sun starts coming up, everyone has to have either their curtains closed and their outdoor lights off. Um, or they have like sea turtle friendly lights and those would be any of the uh, like red lights or amber lights um, because those are safer for sea turtles because they actually can't really detect those uh, lights on the spectrum. So um, unfortunately, there are some areas that have like viewing corridors for people who want to drive down A1A and take a nice, pretty look at the beach. Unfortunately, when they're doing that at night, those are when headlights are coming. Um, mm. 
coming in contact with the beach. So that it, usually in those specific areas, we don't get a, a lot of nests because turtles will come up, they'll see those lights, and then they'll actually turn back around. We call that a false crawl. They'll turn back around because they're like, oh, no, this is this is not safe. We need to go back <laughs> in the water. <laughs> um, but, yeah, for the most part, the a, a lot of residents are good with their um with following the lighting laws and following the coding and everything. So, um, but you know, there are always certain areas that are worse than others. <laughs> of course. So do people have to follow those because the sea turtles will follow those lights or will, are they like attracted to the lights somehow? So the hatchlings are mostly what we worry about when it comes to following lights. Uh, when they're first coming out of the sand, their environmental cue is to go towards the brightest light source. Um, like back when there were no humans, the brightest light source was the ocean. Uh, you know, bef well, even yeah. before the invention of the light bulb, really, um, the brightest light source was the ocean because, you know, the waves crashing on uh, the white caps and the moon even shining off the ocean. But now um, we've got what we call sky glow and like white lights that, make the ocean darker so the hatchlings are starting to some in the worst lighting areas the hatchlings will start crawling towards those lights um, but with the adults it's more of a scare factor um, if they if it's too bright light that means to them they can easily be seen by predators or you know anything okay. that might want to um might want to interrupt their nesting. So the adults always aim for the darker beaches, the darker areas on the beach. Okay, cool. So it affects both of them in different ways. So like the adults, exactly. it's more of a not a good spot and the hatchlings is kind of like a, ooh, go towards the light kind of thing. Exactly. And occasionally we will get adult, we call them adult disorientation. So you'll see their crawl after they nest, maybe another light source popped up or maybe they just got confused and they started crawling parallel to the water because they couldn't find the water because um, mm -hmm. they're also looking for that brighter light source to get back to the water. So um, they will also get disoriented by um, lights after they come out of the water. Interesting. Yeah. And you said you also work at the Sea Turtle Hospital there. Yeah, so we have a rehabilitation hospital. It's been around for, I think, close to almost 10 years, maybe not quite 10 years, but um, just a little bit over maybe eight years. And um, it's a small little hospital and we do have like a vet and everything on call. And um, we have our rehabilitation uh, technicians and I'm considered like one of the uh, assistant technicians. And um We'll get calls for sea turtles. Most of the time, we're not out like actively searching for sea turtles to save. It's always the public who calls us, and we either go get the sea turtle or the sea turtle is brought to us. Um, we are one of, there's a multitude of different sea turtle hospitals around um, South Florida, uh, but we're one of the main ones in um are like Palm Beach area. Palm Beach County is where we're located. Um, but yeah, so we get various things from sickness, like uh, bacterial infections or pneumonia to boat strikes and uh, shark bites, things like that. And we do our absolute best to um, mend those wounds and get the turtles back up to health so that they're uh, ready to go right back out in the ocean. That is so cool. So kind of just depending on what's happening with the turtle, your guys' response varies with that. Exactly. 
that must be so cool to work at and get to see all the different things. A little hard sometimes, but still yeah. super cool. Oh, it's so fun. It's it's fun with the bigger turtles too because we'll get like, uh, I think the biggest turtle we got was last summer and she was about 400 pounds. <laughs> so a full grown <laughs> adult green sea turtle. And then I've worked with 250 pound loggerheads. And then, um, and you know, it's always, they're just such beautiful creatures and they all yeah. have, People don't realize this, but they're, they all have different like personalities, <laughs> even though they're like wild animals, they all have their own like attitudes and things that they don't like or that they do like. So <laughs> that's always fun to work with. I feel like people really like anthropomorphize larger animals like whales and even sharks and yes. that, but I feel like people forget about sea turtles and how like, exactly how much attitude they have. Exactly. And like depending on the time of the year, most, sometimes when we get adult, uh, like adult nesting females during nesting season, like clearly they're very hormonal. So <laughs> they, they, they're not the nicest at all. <laughs> I love that. That's hilarious. You just have to put up with them. Yep, exactly. And then they've got to put up with us. <laughs> so do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing for your graduate studies and what dry, drew you to that? Yeah, so for my grad, uh, for my thesis, I actually did some field work in Belize. So my thesis title is um, Examining the Effects of Provisioning Tourism on Nurse Sharks. So provisioning tourism is when you go out and you feed animals uh, for tourism benefit. So usually it's for a, t a species of animal that um, needs food in order to be encouraged to come around humans because um, you know most wild animals won't come around humans at all <laughs> unless there's mm. some incentive like food <laughs> so um, yeah so in Belize uh, I stayed on a small island called Key Cocker um, and there's an area there called Shark Ray Village and uh, tour guides will go and feed the nurse sharks and the stingrays there um, while uh, while tourists get in the water and take pictures and videos and things like that. Um, and it's actually located like right off the back of the Belize Barrier Reef, which is the second largest reef in the world. Um, oh. So yeah, and it's actually the largest living reef in the world, fun fact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, my research focused on looking at the behavior of the nurse sharks and to see if they were habituated to the area. Um, so I did a lot of snorkel surveys while tourists were there and uh, recorded the behavior, various uh, categories of behavior for the nurse sharks. Um, and also a lot of video recording was involved in my um, research. So I had a solid like 30 hours of video to review after I got back. So that was fun. <laughs> Always the most fun part is going yes. through the data after. <laughs> oh my goodness. It was so much. Um, but yeah. And I also tested to see if they were, if they kind of stayed in the area or if they, um, what is it, if they stayed in the area or if they kind of came out of nowhere when boats appeared. And um, that was, that's how I could tell if they were habituated to the area or not. Like, were they coming here solely for the food and the boats or, you know, do they just live around here? So, like, after the boats left, if they were still around, that kind of indicated that it was their home more so than they were there with the boats. Exactly, yeah. That is so cool. Why is that something that is important to study? So, I when uh, sharks are endangered, I'm pretty sure most species of sharks are endangered, and they're also 
very, very important for our oceans. So um, anything involved with human interaction, it's important to know that relationship and to see how um, that relationship is affecting the population, whether whether it be negative or positive. Um, and with my project, I really wasn't looking at solely negative. I was looking, you know, like at all the effects. So, and if most of those effects happen to be negative, then so be it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's just important to uh, study any type of human interaction with sharks, um, especially nurse sharks, because um, when I was doing a lot of my literature review, there actually was no papers on the uh tourism with nurse sharks there was a lot with tourism and other species of sharks and rays but not much with nurse sharks so it was pretty cool to be able to do this research yeah that's awesome that you're kind of feeling that and I love that you're looking not only at the negative effects but also some positive effects that can come out of it I feel like it's pretty easy to be pretty biased to think, oh, humans ruin everything. Right. (laughs) I mean, we don't have a track record. I know, exactly. It's like, oh, kind of, no. (laughs) Like, well, we'll try and find something good here. Right, exactly. (laughs) So I love that you're doing that. Can you tell us, like, how you're doing the research? Like, you mentioned uh, snorkel surveys. So what kind of was, like, a day in your life there? Yeah, so those were the funnest part, I think the most fun parts of um, my research, because I said, I was like, if I do a project, a thesis project, I want to be in the water, I want to do field work, because <laughs> I just love being in the water and uh, all that good stuff. But so what we would do, we would do one hour sur- surveys. So um, we'd get in pairs, we'd go to the uh, to the study site. And we'd usually go anywhere between like 10am and like, 1 p.m. because those are the busy times of the day. Um, so we would go there in your pairs. We'd get in the water. One person would be recording behaviors on a dive slate and another person would be acting as like a uh, another pair of eyes with uh, a GoPro. So the GoPro was, I guess the GoPro was acting as another pair of eyes as well. So you had like six pairs of eyes looking at nurse sharks. <laughs> as like backup I guess um but yeah so we would uh do tallies on the frequency of the behavior we were seeing so some examples of behavior would be milling so that would uh that's when their sharks would kind of swim around in circles along the bottom um another behavior would be aggression so aggression between nurse sharks and then also aggression between nurse sharks and non-nurse sharks so interspecific um and also it was another behavior um oh we also looked at shark initiated human interaction so if a shark went up to a tourist or human um and initiated like physical contact as if they were looking for food or um or just anything just brushing up against their leg without the human intentionally wanting to do that we would also record that as well um so yeah we would So mostly from the video, what I would do uh, when I got back um, from all the surveys, I would go through the video the exact same way uh, we would go through the surveys in the water, Um, except this time I was also counting number of sharks. So I would take the maximum number of sharks that I could count within one frame um, and use that as kind of a basis for um, counting like the frequency of the behavior uh, we were doing. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was very involved. (laughs) Um, and we also did a survey 
a couple surveys for the habituation I was talking about. So I would actually place a camera in the middle of Shark Reef Village before any boats came for the day. So usually that was a lot earlier in the morning. Um, and so that our boat wouldn't be a factor, we would actually park the boat at a nearby reef. I say nearby, but it was still about a 200, almost 200 meter swim <laughs> to get to the, um, probably closer to like 150, but about a hundred meter swim to get to Shark Reef Village and plant the camera there. Um, and basically what I would do is mark the time that the first tour boat arrives and see how many sharks come into frame leading up to uh, that time. So kind of if you think of it on, on a graph, on like visually on a graph, it would kind of look like a flat line and then the line would go up and kind of peak at the top and then go down as time went on after the boats um, arrived, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. Um, can you tell us anything about what you found so far? Or is that kind of like top secret for now? No, no, it's not top secret. <laughs> um, while I am still kind of going through the, um, well, I've kind of, I have finalized my results and everything. But basically, what we were seeing is matching up with the stats that I've run. So their, be, uh, their behavior was changing um, with the fact of food being involved or if food wasn't involved. So for example, we saw more aggression behavior when there's food in the water. Um, and then we saw more milling behavior um, when there was no food in the water. So uh, just a way to look at that would be when there's no boats in the area or when there's no food in the area, the sharks are kind of like just swimming around in circles being like, la di da, like what are we gonna do? Um, and then, you know, with the aggression, it's like, as soon as there's food in the water, they're like, we want this food and it's ours, you can't get any. And they'll just kind of bite and push every everything away <laughs> in order to get for the get to the food. So cool. that is, yeah. So, oh, and then with the habituation, we definitely saw um, difference in the number of sharks leading up to when the first boats arrived. And even we did a little bit of uh, comparison of the number of sharks whenever there were no boats in the area. So there were some surveys where we got there, there were some tour boats there, and then all the tour boats left, and then all the sharks kind of left as well. Well, they didn't like completely leave the area, but they just disappeared from that immediate area. Um, okay. So we saw that there was a clear difference in the number of sharks whenever there were boats in the area and when there were boats not in the area. So um, the sharks are definitely habituated to um, less so the food, more so the presence of the boats, because boats to them mean food. So they're going to come mm. to the boats. <laughs> cool. That's really interesting that you found all that. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was, it's exciting when the stats match up with what you're seeing. <laughs> Very exciting. It's one of the biggest like reliefs I think you've ever felt. Oh, easily. <laughs> I mean, like you can always write the paper saying like, oh, it didn't really mean anything, but it's just so much yeah, nicer yeah. to be like, it did. Exactly. You can be like, yes, everything was significant. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about you and how you got involved in this and why you're so passionate about it. So do you have anyone that directly inspires you or that you were inspired by? 
Um, so I actually really didn't have anyone that I um, really looked up to growing up, especially in this field, mostly because there was no one who looked like me at all. <laughs> I'm a black female and I absolutely had zero, I knew zero black females in this field, especially with sharks. And um, I really kind of, my motivation um, going, getting, getting to where I am now and moving forward is to kind of be the role model that I didn't have for um, other kids who might be, you know, exactly like how I was when I was younger. Um, so that's really been my motivating factors to be the inspiration that I wanted when I was younger. So I love that. So you want to be the face that you wish you could have seen when you were younger. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I definitely agree. I'm not a minority, but I like not having any women to look up to when I first heard about this field. Like you'd hear right. about like Jack Stowe and whatnot. Right. So <laughs> even then, like I can't imagine what it would be like to see absolutely no one look like you. So I think it's amazing that now you're doing all this advocation and outreach to give people that are like you a face to look up to. Exactly. <laughs> So is that one of the reasons it's important for you to advocate for women in STEM and do some of the outreach that you do? Yes, it is. I try and get myself out there as much as possible so that even if, even though I'm not like a big name researcher or anything, just being able to see someone, if someone else saw someone like me in my field and got inspired, like that's all I want is, um, to inspire at least just one person. And I think even just women in general in this field, especially in the shark field in general, or the shark field specifically is very male dominant. Um, and mostly because like with shark tacking and everything, it's like, oh, like you got to handle the shark and oh, like let the men do that. But um, recently I actually did a shark tagging program um, that was run by two women. And that was the first time I ever saw women in this field specifically. And, um, and even women that were directing a whole tagging program uh, in the field. And that really was made me so happy. I, <laughs> I was love like, that. yes, like, we're out here doing it. And, you know, it takes a while to, well, and I also kind of kind of look back and it's like it took me this long to be able to see women mm -hmm. in charge of something in the field that I want to be in so that was inspiring to me um one of them is both of them actually are my mentors currently so that awesome. and they and they also actively advocate for getting more women in STEM and even specifically women in color they are very very um passionate about that oh I love that I love that um almost all the women I've talked to about this is kind of been driven by like almost spite where you're yeah. like, there's no one I want to, there's no one that I'm looking up to right now. So I'm going to go be that person. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like us as women are very good at that. We're very good at that. <laughs> we definitely are. We kind of had enough of these men and we decided, you know what? There's a lot of room for some badass women in here now. Exactly. Let us take over. We got this. <laughs> So if you could speak to your younger self and give yourself advice or another young listener, what would you tell them? What would you wish they would know? Um, I think when I was younger, I compared my, well, and even now, um, <laughs> I compare myself to other people in my field all the time. And I would say to my younger self and to everyone else is to just 
focus on your goal and what you want to do and don't compare your journey with everyone else. Um, I was an athlete as well growing up and I was an like a D1 athlete all through college and my life was chained to the NCAA. So there was a lot of things that I couldn't do um, in regards to like field work or like lab work, things like that. I was just, my time was completely taken up by my sport. Um, and because of that, I was like, wow, like I'm not getting any type of experience. I'm not getting any field experience. Like all these people are doing this. Um, but like, even then at, I gained a lot more different life skills from yeah. being an athlete and you know like everyone's journey is different and I still got to where I want to be and um well you know I still have more goals of t after yeah. graduation but you know like you um just stop looking at everyone else keep looking at your own journey and do the best that you can do in your journey I think that is fantastic advice and so incredibly important yeah, we I definitely, definitely especially with social media, every uh, just want to compare yourself to everyone and oh, I know. <laughs> compare your journeys. <laughs> Before we head off, is there anywhere people can follow along with you and uh, see any of your cool shark things? Yes, um, so you can go to my Instagram, which is Carly, so C A R L E E, then M J underscore, so C A R L E E M j underscore uh it's for my instagram and the same for my twitter so i post some uh this time of year it'll be some cute little hatchling pictures so definitely go <laughs> give that a look <laughs> but um yeah i post different shark pictures and i'll be posting more of uh, my field pictures from belize last year as well i have a whole bunch of pictures i just need to dump into instagram so <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Carly. It was amazing to have you on. Awesome, Jill. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. I wanted to take a second and shout out another one of Carly's projects, the Minorities in Shark Science, or MISS, group. Carly is a co-founder of this group, along with four other Black female shark researchers, Jasmine Graham, Amani Webster-Schultz, and Jada Elcock. Along with wanting to be positive role models, these four women want to promote diversity and inclusion within shark science and encourage women of color to push through barriers. I think this is an absolutely amazing group and workshop, and I highly recommend checking out more at their website, missalasmo.org. You can find it linked on all of our social medias. Make sure to check out Carly on all her social media, and as always, follow along with Water Women on all social media platforms. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. Make sure you also check out our website, waterwomenpodcast.ca, for some highlights about this week's podcast. And until next week, stay salty. <laughs>